Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast. Dr. Bill Kanaski here with you. Man, it is so hot this summer. God, it's hot every summer. I don't know why I'm complaining about it. But everybody's like, oh, God, it's so hot this particular summer. I think it's the global warming people. They want to make me think it's hotter. It's always hot in the summer, right? When I was five years old, it was hot in the summer. I was like, it wasn't this hot. Well, yeah, it was. Hey, this podcast is brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Um, I'm going to have to go right into my rant today. Listen, folks, um, because this happened to me yesterday. Listen, if you're one of these people, when you're at the red, okay, so you're driving your car, you're at the red light, okay, and you're waiting. Okay, this is not the time to be on your cell phone. Okay, I'm very anti, I work in the transportation. I'm very anti- cell phone use in cars but for some reason people think when they get to the red light right now now it's it's okay to pick up your phone and start texting right or looking at the score or watching it no no people no you're still in your car so of course the person in front of me yesterday right staring at the phone light turns green guy just sits there everybody's beeping right it's a long line and a turn lane not only is it dangerous because we all could have plowed right into this part because we saw the light turn green. Everybody starts inching forward, right? But the poor people at the back of the line don't get to make the turn. Okay. This is what we call in Florida. This is what causes road rage. Knowing, knowing you could have and should have made the turn, but some asshole was up in front of you looking at their phone, waited for four seconds and that four seconds cost you the turn. That's how road rage happens in Florida. I'm just going to say it right now. Do not get on your cell phone when you're at the stoplight. Please, people, people, just save it for when you get home. Um, that's my rant for today. I've got a great guest today. His name is Kevin Quinley. Uh, Kevin uh, is a fan and listener uh, of this podcast. Uh, he sent me uh, a really nice email, some of his background information, he uh, really is an, an, an expert in the insurance industry, uh, serves as an expert witness. Uh, I'm very impressed with him. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Kevin Quinley. Kevin, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing good, Bill. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure and honor uh, and uh, been looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. Now I got I got to pick, I, I did some reading on you this morning as well. Get ready for this. You, you, you did undergrad at Wake Forest? Demon Deacon. Okay, now I gotta tell you that I was I was I was in Chapel Hill during the '90s when you guys had Randolph Childress and um, um, Tim Duncan, um, maybe Tim Tim Duncan, yeah, uh, and you still couldn't win it. But boy, what? But I tell you, what, Randolph Childress was just a uh, a Tar Heel uh, killer. But true true fact about Wake Forest, which you no, know, my kids even asked me, like everybody, no one really understands this. But when I was at UNC. They made you take a history class. Okay, this was a required to graduate. You had to take a state of North Carolina history class. So I, uh, and there's a couple different you could take. I picked um, the research, like the history of the Research Triangle Park, right? Which is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, the triangle. That's what they called up there. And um, through this history class, I had, they had taught me that Wake Forest was located in Wake Forest, North Carolina, which is in the triangle. 
But then when Wake Forest didn't get invited by NC and UNC, NC State, and Duke to really participate in the C, it wasn't a square. It was a triangle. Wake Forest literally picked up all their shit and moved 90 minutes away to, to Winston-Salem. Am, am I pretty accurate on this, Kevin? Yes. Uh, a story that ties into that. I had a good friend and high school classmate who went to Duke. I'm sorry to hear and, that. Yeah, I know. Very sorry to hear that. Uh, actually, when I was when I when I was at Wake Forest, and this was in in the 70s, uh, the great Satan was Chapel Hill. They've now been supplanted by Duke, but that's that's a sidebar. <laughs> my my friend was at Duke. He's a freshman, and he he says one weekend he looks at the map and he sees how close Wake Forest, uh, North Carolina, is to Durham. <laughs> So he gets on his bike and he pedals about 12 miles and he gets to Wake Forest, North Carolina and is told that Wake Forest University had relocated from Wake Forest, North Carolina in 1956. That's hilarious. Uh, so um, that was, uh, he got his exercise and but we, were able, <laughs> we were not able to connect. It is confusing for people not, you know, that they don't have a history or understanding in North Carolina. You're looking at the map like, oh, wow, Wake Forest is right next to Duke. It's like, well, kind of. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, well, I will end. We'll end this podcast with the little conference realignment talk which <laughs> i oh. think wake wake force people are very very uh they may be in the ivy league before this is done but let's it's a timely uh, topic let's not start there let's 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 start with you okay. um so again you've been uh i think in the industry since 77 is that true yes. okay Kev, hey, kevin that means you're old that means you're very very old That's you you don't want to know where i was in 1977 because I was three and a half years old, Kevin. Well, the euphemism I use is seasoned, uh, but old <laughs> certainly uh, fits. Wise, very wise. Uh, I hope. When <laughs> I entered the insurance industry, Jimmy Carter was president, just to give you some perspective. So I've seen a lot of changes in the industry during that time. Oh, wow. That's, that, no, that, that's really incredible, though, and I want to talk about that. Um, but tell me, okay, so where I want to get into your expert witness uh, work. Um, the other thing, um, I, and I got to, I don't know how you, I don't know how you fit this on your business card, but see, you see after my name, it's Bill Kanaski, PhD. That's three letters. I can't, you have 16 letters after your freaking name, dude. How do you, how do you, like, do you, you put that on the business? Like I saw that your email, your you email, uh, the end of your email, it like goes into three more pages of, of initials. That's well, a lot of qualifications. What you have to do, Bill, is run it around the back of your business card. It's unbelievable. Was, seriously, some the people within the insurance industry know what those abbreviations and initials stand for, okay. and so that's that's the space that I'm in. Some people say I've got more degrees than a thermometer, but th these are all continuing education um, accreditations that you have to earn by taking examinations and such. So, with within the insurance space, it would be more intelligible, but. Some, it does seem uh, to those outside of the insurance space like overkill. Well, it makes it makes me feel inadequate. I can tell you that. Uh, um, so how? Okay, so um, insurance. Now, and again, I'm not. I'm not bashing the insurance industry, Kevin. I'm not. I get accused of that sometimes, but I just don't shoot the messenger. But insurance, generally speaking, and I am a jury psychologist, so I I, I know what I'm talking about here. To the majority of Americans, it's not a real positive topic. A, you have to pay money for it. 
B, you're always getting screwed. Knowing that, why, why in the world did you immerse your life into this industry? Because you told me before we started, you really enjoy this work. And I listen, I think that's the number one thing in life. You better enjoy what you're doing. I don't care how much money you're making. Money can come in many different ways. If you don't really love what you're doing, I think you're wasting your time in large regard uh, and missing out on something. You, you love what you do, but a lot of people hear about what you're doing and like they start to cringe. What, what made you immerse your, your, your life into the insurance industry? There was no grand design. It was 1977. I'd just gotten a master's degree in international relations and politics. And I, I was sort of a lib, useless liberal arts major and needed a job. And I was looking for a career. I was looking for a job to pay the rent. And so somebody sent me on an interview with a company called Crawford and Company. They're, they're independent worldwide insurance claims adjusters. And, and I went for the interview. This was 1977. They started you off at 9,000 a year with a company car and full benefits. Jeez. Being a grad student, you know, how much beer and album, record albums. Remember Jackpot. Those? Jackpot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I said, I'll do this for a little while and then go back to maybe get a PhD and go into academics or whatever. I was not really not interested in law school, but or foreign service, try for that. Very competitive. Lo and behold, although it was a big culture shock going from academics to dealing with, with consumers who had claims and by definition were going through trauma, um, it was a bumpy ride. But I started, to, I started to enjoy the work and the challenge and the fact that through handling insurance claims, um, I could learn about multiple subject matter domains, law, medicine, engineering, uh, crashes, negotiation, human behavior, that, that I could devote my career to this and never stop learning. So if you're a lifelong learner, yeah. I think is a mega, mega skill as, as we move into the 21st century, I, I think I saw that... Um, the barrier to entry into claims was was not what it was to say law or foreign service. Yeah. So it quick it became maybe this is not a bridge to going back to academics or foreign service. Maybe this is a career path. And you know, after a few years, I got promoted and 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 had succeeding levels of responsibility. And so I never planned to be an expert witness either. And that sort of that was our transition. I sort of had a parallel career. While I was yeah. in claims, I started writing for professional journals, yeah. and I started being invited to speak at conferences, and I developed sort of a body of work. And then in the early 2000s, I started getting unsolicited overtures from law firms because of my industry visibility to yeah. serve as an expert witness. I had no idea. I had to turn them down most of the time because I had a demanding corporate job. So, sure. um, And then it came to pass, you know, uh, after 30-some years in the corporate world, um, and turning down a lot of these cases and my wife saying, would you ever consider doing this full time? No, no, I could never leave the corporate <laughs> womb. I took a deep breath in late 2011 and voluntarily stepped out of a corporate role, said, I'm going to try this full time. It was terrifying. And, and it's, it, I have to say it's so far, knock on wood, it's worked out great. There's some parts of the job I don't like, but I love being self-employed. I love being able to sort of monetize whatever expertise I have into assisting people and evaluating insurance claims and whether they were handled appropriately. That's, um, that's really an amazing uh, uh, background. I know that you're, you're well published that you, 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 you speak a lot um, uh, uh, to groups and it's a, uh, 
it, it, it it's really it's really impressive um Thank now you. now now the, the the let's talk about the expert um your role as an expert witness um you know we exchanged some emails uh, earlier this week and i kind of like the slant uh you took on your email because you essentially said there's a lot of mistakes people make when hiring experts and I, I know for a, a fact, and this is somewhat related, you know, particularly when you're talking about things like nuclear verdicts, um, you know, settlements that are way too expensive. Um, when you do the when you do the postmortems on those issues, um, I see a lot of mistakes that were made early, early on in cases. I see a lot of assessment, misassessment of of true vulnerability because of whether it be claims people or attorneys using um, their gut instinct, right? They're, 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 yeah, I got a hunch this case is a good one or a bad one or a winner or a loser, which is totally opposite of what I do because I take the scientific route. But yeah, I think, I think within the claims process and within um, you know, hiring expert witnesses, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of mistakes made. I'd like, to, I'd like to go through this list because I think it's really... I think it's really important, a really important list. You know, Kevin, if I, oh, there's, there's my mouse. I, so my, now Kevin, just to jump in here. So I have a 21 year old son who I booted out two years ago, who's now living back in the house. And so I'm, that's the transition I'm going through. Right. I mean, um, I just. Without I'm going trying, into detail, I can relate. It's, it's, it's making me nuts. None of my, I, I go to look, I can't find anything. Everything's moved. I, I it's, 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 it's taken over. It's, it's, it's really unbelievable. It's like you have kids and then they grow up and then you still have kids. The boomerang effect. They don't, don't go anywhere. Um, let, so let's go to this, this list. Um, uh, because I, I think this is really, when I read this list, I'm like, wow, the audience is really, really going to, get a lot out of this and we have plenty of time kevin don't don't uh don't worry but some of these things on the list is funny because i go through now i'm a non-testifying expert that's my that's my official legal role um but some of the things on this list i go through the same damn things and number one on the list is uh retaining an expert at the 11th hour with hair on fire I cannot tell you how many times this has happened to me in 18 years. This could be one of the most common mistakes uh, as well. Tell me about your experiences with that. Cause I think doing anything, anything in life last minute with your hair on fire, the, the statistical odds of a good outcome, uh, I think are pretty low. I, I agree. And let me just preface uh, all of these issues with the fact that, you know, I, law firms and attorneys are the source of my business and most they're great to work with i'm not throwing shade at them but you, the outliers tend to stick with you but the, the and a scenario that's not an outlier is this 11th hour hair on fire yeah oh my god you, you can tell it's it's yeah. 20 minutes after 5 p.m <laughs> every time you get a phone call from an area code that you don't recognize yep and it's some attorney in you know, Duluth or Mobile or whatever, it's at, at the end of their workday. And it occurs to them, they've had a, the scheduling order for eight months. 
with, with a host of deadlines, including expert disclosure. And it occurs to him, you know, I finished my work for the day, maybe I'll find an expert. And um, it is frustrating uh, to, to me. So one of the first questions I ask as an expert is, you know, what are the deadlines? Yeah. Uh, juxtaposed to how much, what's the volume, the universe of material that need to be reviewed. But the, the point is that, um, and, and the expert is always free to say no. And I find myself increasingly, you know, saying thanks, but no thanks. If I don't think I can do a good quality job yeah. within a compressed time frame, juxtaposed with the other projects and engagements that I've going yeah. on simultaneously. Good point. As, as agonizing as it is to turn away business, because we're all people pleasers and I want to be one too. But the longer the, the, the message I try to get across to counsel is the longer the runway you can provide me, the better job I can do for you and your client. Rush jobs are rarely quality jobs. Would you like it fast yeah. or high quality? You can't have it both, right? <laughs> you can't, there's a trade-off there, yeah. okay? If you want a Michelin level four or five star meal, you're going to have to make a reservation probably months in advance. Yeah. If you want fast food, you go to McDonald's yeah, show up. or whomever, you're not, you don't, not going there for quality. So you cannot expect a Michelin level product with a McDonald's mindset. I kind of, sometimes I'm tempted to say, would you like fries with that? I need a rule 26 report. <laughs> And uh, five thousand documents reviewed and analyzed and yeah. and drafted yeah. and and vetted and proofread and edited and can you get it to me within ten days? Now again, uh, the, like, I've, I've had some cases where I've done that. <laughs> a lot of times I just have to say, look, I, you know, I would yeah. be a great fit for this case, uh, but I just don't think I can do a quality job within the time frame set. I, I thank you yeah. for considering me, and I hope you understand. And usually they do, and it, it's agonizing to say to say no to business. But worse is if you say yes, then find out you you you're doing a crappy. It's your name on that report, yeah. and it's you on an island when that red light goes on, and and you have to raise your hand and swear. There's not much that your attorney. They're, they're not representing you. They hired you, but they're yeah. not representing you. You're on a, you got to defend yourself. And if you do a crappy job, that's what they, you know, when we were little, they said that's going to be part of your permanent record, becomes part of your per permanent record. So that's a riff and frustration on, and I get it. Sometimes it's because the client, i.e. the insurance company, doesn't want to spend the coin yeah. until they absolutely have to. Well, I understand that as long as you understand that you, you can find an expert to say whatever you want, but if you want a quality expert who's going to call balls and strikes and do a very good thorough job, you just can't microwave it. That, now, this timing, it, I mean, this has been around forever, Kevin. I, 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 I point it out a lot. I point it out in papers. I point it out in speeches. Everybody, it's the same, but this, I, I think at least you know i i know you do you do plaintiff work you do defense work as an expert as you should um i do mostly defense work but man the plaintiff's bar is totally taken advantage of the misuse of time by the defense and the timeliness of the defense and it it, it the amount of money that leads to is a is, we're talking staggering amounts of money in in, in terms of 
settlement values and damages, much of it due to poor decision-making and timing. It absolutely boggles my mind. And here's the thing, we've known about it for a, a while now. No, no, not, not much change, not much change. It's, it's really fascinating. So uh, expect, <laughs> expect more, uh, hey, expect more plant fraternities to keep taking advantage of it. Uh, yeah. I've seen some change, but not much. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a really, uh, um, really, really good issue. Uh, next on your list is uh, uh, the failure to succinctly frame the key issues uh, for which you, for, you, you, you need an expert. Um, and so I'm assuming that's when people reach out to you and, and what they need is somewhat vague and not as specific as you would like. Yes, a, a lot of times, counsel, when they call me, you know, I want to know what, what the case is about, and they'll, they'll give me what I call a data vomit. I mean, they, they will go through, you know, take uh, maybe 20, 30 minutes of going through the case and, and the minutia of the case. And, you know, it's like drinking from a fire hose when you're the recipient of that. And so, I mean, I think there's a happy medium. You want enough of the broad brush contours of the case to kind of get a feel what it's about, but it would it would save counsel time and the expert time and save a lot of wasted time if before making that phone call to the expert, uh, counsel could crystallize. The, these are the issues that, that we need an opinion on, whether it's failure to settle the case when an opportunity arose, whether it's uh, allegedly deficient investigation of a claim, whether it's deficient evaluation of a claim, whether it's wrongful denial of coverage. I mean, there are certain buckets into which an expert like me is, is called upon. And so I, the attorneys that I work with typically work in the arena of so-called bad faith, um, denial of coverage cases. And so it's, it can be frustrating, like nailing jello to the wall sometimes to get an idea from counsel, and they may not have thought it through themselves. Do you need a coverage opinion? In which case, I may not be the best guy because that invades the province of the court, makes me vulnerable to some kind of a challenge or exclusionary motion. And number three, it's, it's not, they might need a, a different kind of expert for that. Is it, is it the process? Is it the coverage? Is it a blend? Because um, you may not get you know, one expert for the price. You may need a separate expert for some aspect of the case, they may not want to hear that, but I'll tell them that if I feel that way. But it just, it will save everybody a lot of time and unnecessary uh, agony if, uh, <laughs> if counsel can say, these are the issues that we need an opinion on. And um, assuming you can help, and I, I won't know until I look at the materials, I always emphasize that. I don't know what my opinion will be until I get the materials. Well, based upon what you've told me, I think there's some traction there. Yeah. If, I, if I can't help you, I, I will, you know, be, before writing any report, I will pick up the phone and we'll talk. But yes, uh, I, I would say failure or meandering descriptions of the case from womb to tomb, soup to nuts, beginning to end, without a clear idea of why, why'd you call me and what do you need me to opine on so that then I can say that is in my wheelhouse, that's in my swim lane, or say this is at or beyond the periphery of what, what I can deliver. 
But usually I know of another expert. It's a, it's a compact community. Uh, I can often recommend somebody, if I can't be the, the guy or the yeah. lady to help, then I think I can give an informed referral for somebody in whose wheelhouse that subject matter domain is. Outstanding. That's going to be very valuable. All right. So, yeah. So obviously uh, want to uh, uh, be as precise as possible uh, with needs. Next on your list, seeking microwaved first call expert opinions. What do you mean by that, Kevin? <laughs> by that, I mean when the on your first conversation, yeah. a counsel uh, wants to know what your opinion would be. I hate that. They, they do it to me all the time. They, they call me. Here, here's, here's the seven-minute uh, summary of my case. Then the next first question is, so what type of jurors am I looking for? And I'm like, I don't know. What? I don't know. <laughs> it's, 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 like a, it's like asking a pathologist yeah. without looking at the body. Yeah. Can you tell me what the cause of death was? <laughs> With, in my realm, the body is typically the insurance claim file. It used to be paper. Now it's mostly digital, almost all digital. So without looking at the key documents, chief of which uh, includes the claim file, I can't make an informed decision. Again, the best I can do sometimes is to, is to emphasize that. And my engagement letter emphasizes that. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what my opinions are going to be. Um, my, my time is for sale, but my opinion isn't. I have even had a few cases, Bill, where the law firm says, we're not going to hire you or the yeah. client's not going to hire you unless you can tell us that you can support our position. <clears throat> and at which point I have to say, well, Godspeed. Yeah. I look to you because it's, it's the experts who will do that. I think they give, give experts a bad name. A bad name. <laughs> As, as a, you know, a yeah. opinion for hire, a whore, uh, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and, and those exist in every realm, uh, legal as well as expert witness. But I, to me, it's intellectually dishonest for me to say, I can, I can warrant and guarantee that my opinion will help yours. The best I can do is say, based upon what you've told me, you know, I think there's some traction there, but I, I'm always always tempered that there the flattest pancake has two sides yeah and the side that i'm hearing from prospective retaining counsel is, is typically shaded toward toward one side and sometimes you you start digging through the documents and you see that there are shades of gray and there's another side and um so that's what i mean by microwaved opinions based upon yeah. my seven minute synopsis can you tell me what your opinions are? And <laughs> okay. I say, I'm, I'm an expert, not a wizard. That's awesome. I'm going to go off script here because I got a really, really good question. That I think our audience is going to love. Hey, I just want your brutal honesty. That's all. That's all I want. I get in, I, the most trouble I get into is when I'm honest with people because uh, they may not like it. Uh, but I'm honest. Right. Um, I just want your honesty, Kevin, because I think it's the, I think this is helpful. Um, and I do believe in things like constructive criticism, assuming you have any idea what you're talking. See, it's the people that give constructive criticism that are full of shit themselves. That's where I've got the problem. But if you're qualified to give constructive criticism, I think that's a great thing. 
I, you do work for plaintiff attorneys and defense attorneys. Yes. I want to know from your experience, which is decades. In your experience, what do plaintiff attorneys maybe do a little bit better than defense attorneys and vice versa? Because they're wired very differently, Kevin. I do think at the risk of overgeneralization, the plaintiff firms give you that longer runway. I think they are a little, a little less inclined to wait to the 11th hour last minute to retain experts, especially if they recognize that their disclosure deadlines are sooner than the defendant's disclosure deadline. So I think that they are more proactive. If, if I can, yeah, again, no, over generalization, there are exceptions. Um, so, you know, that's one difference. I, I think that um, plaintiff, some plaintiff's firms are a little more insistent on um, trying to get you to stipulate based upon a, a phone call, you know, that your opinion can help them uh, when you really don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you can't, but you can't make that assessment without looking at the documents. And um, so th there's that. Um, I think they may be a little less, uh, they're less likely to put the, let me put it this way, on the defense side, a lot of times they're working for insurance companies, so they may be more inclined to, you know, uh, question bills or question the investment in the case, because there's a mindset of cost control, and I get it, you know, I was a purchaser of legal services and expert witness services, for years during my career yeah. as a claims executive and before then a supervisor, a manager, an adjuster. You know, so I've gone from being a, um, a purchasing expert services to being a, a purveyor and provider of expert services. So there's some cost sensitivity. Again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Yeah, I think there's a greater cost sensitivity. Whereas I think the plaintiff side is more inclined sometimes to see it not just as a cost, but an investment in positioning their case yeah, and strengthening that case to e either leverage a better settlement or to ring the bell at trial. So those are sort of some off the top of my head differentiations that I see, again, at the risk of, of overgeneralization. I'm not saying one, one way is sure. bad, one way is good, although the long runway is personally uh, you know, preferred by me, but Absolutely. in a perfect world, we don't live in a perfect world. And I've taken short fuse assignments depending upon the ebb and flow of cases and whether the subject yeah. matter appeals to me and, and how, how narrow or extensive the universe of documents is, there's, there's a lot of factors at play. That, that, that's really great stuff, Kevin. Thank you. Speaking of runways, uh, I'm typically taking off and landing on an aircraft carrier, which is not really a pleasant experience. Uh, all right, let's wrap up soon. We got a couple more things on your list. I did not, this, the, this is the favorite one on my list, and it makes me absolutely insane. It always has. Uh, Pennywise, pound foolish, gasoline price for mentality and hiring experts. I, you know, the one, one thing I've learned to do um, which was not easy, um, was, was saying, was saying no, um, is to say, you know, maybe I'm not such a good fit. Cause I'd always get a call. Oh, I heard X, Y, and Z about you. Blah, 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 blah. You're so great. Blah, 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 blah. And then when I start talking 
price pricing of my services, you get, a, oh, I don't know if I get a blah, blah, blah. And I used to try to kind of wheel and deal because I was younger and I needed the work and I would do anything to get the work when I would. Now it's like, well, I guess you called the wrong guy. <laughs> um, you're going to, I think in most things in life, not everything, Kevin, I think in most things, um, you, largely you do get what you pay for. And, and I do think, uh, now that's not always true, Kevin. I, I do I am aware that that's not always true. I think that's a general statement, um, but I think that is true um, um, a lot. And I do see, um, I do see a lot of defense counsel. I know this defense counsel very frustrated that their clients will not let them hire maybe the better expert because of cost. How often do you run into that from the defense side, at least? Yes, there, there sometimes is some price resistance, sometimes from the plaintiff side, sometimes from the defense side, and not so much about hourly rate, although there may be cases where I have not gotten an engagement because of hourly rate. That's part of the quandary, and lawyers share this as well. Sometimes you, you don't get a case and you, you're not quite sure why. They don't tell you, they just you know discreetly move off to a different expert, and that's cool. I get it. That's their prerogative. I do agree with you. Things are usually cheaper for a reason. Yeah. Where the where the resistance comes in. Yeah. Back to McDonald's. Back yeah. to McDonald's. Yes. Michelin versus yeah. McDonald's. I'm not saying I'm Michelin, <laughs> but I'm definitely not McDonald's. I try to reach some happy medium. I, I strive to be like Michelin, and in, in which case there's going to be you know a, a cost or I, I prefer to say an investment in that. The the resistance often comes example like this let me just a hypothetical example you have a case in arkansas plaintiff side case uh high stakes case you know where they're asking for millions and uh they send you seven thousand documents to review and your initial bill come you know, you're reviewing them furiously and you know 10 days after they send you these documents they're eager to find out, you know, what you think about them. There's 7,000 documents. Yeah. And you get your, the first bill, which covers a 30-day span, and it's 10 or 11 grand, and they act like a scalded cat. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they call you and say, what can we do? Yeah. To, and they're doing the math because yeah. you're just getting into the case. Yeah. What, what can we do to manage the expenses here? And I say, well... You can settle the case on the cheap. Yeah, yeah, there. That, there's one you can, idea. You can opt to not send me any more documents. Yeah. <laughs> in which case, there are problems, Mr. Qu you know, deposition. Have you seen this aspect of the case? You can um, take the case to you. You can uh, you can put a cap on my uh, on on what you want me to do, and just cut it there. But there's a trade-off. Is what yeah. I'm saying. There's always a trade-off, and they hate they hate that discussion. But I, I, as any, I mean, I'm an expert, you're an expert, we have somewhat different roles. Yeah. I think that discussion is really important up front, don't you? Yes. And um, another way that they will approach it, and this is not, there's nothing wrong with this. Sometimes either at the beginning or when they're into it, they say, well, can you give us a budget? That's really hard for me. I will give them a budget, but it will be heavily caveated because a lot of times, you know, the, the famous words, 
uh, the famous four words that every expert hears is, oh, by the way, <laughs> oh, by the way, there's supplemental document production. Oh, by the way, there's a, there are three depositions of fact witnesses that we need you to review. Oh, by the way, there's some motions that you need to review. Here's some case law. And so this is not a job in either of our capacities. We're not making widgets here. Yeah. It's knowledge work. Yep. And it's, there's so many variables that can affect. You know, if I'm doing a 10-page a, a report, that's one thing. But I, I, have, I have some cases where my Rule 26 report is 40 or 50 pages and heavily mm -hmm. footnoted with, with industry resources. So what I'm trying to say in a long-winded way is that I, I understand the need for a budget. And if I provide one, I try, to, I try to have various qualifiers and say, this is not a guarantee. This is not a warranty. Uh, this is not a not-to-exceed figure. But this is my best guess based upon right now. But there are a lot of variables that I don't have any control over that you do, or you may not, you may not even have control over regarding the volume of document production. Will I, be, will I be needed in a deposition or not? Probably only one in three cases do I go to deposition. One in 10 where I go to trial. Is it going to trial? Is it going to deposition? That can materially influence the price tag. So I don't view it as a, as a you know, blank check. But what I try to get across is this is knowledge work. It is not like having your, your transmission serviced or you know, pumping out widgets. And so um, I, tr I try to you know, sensitize them to that. And most of them, I, I don't get any pushback or flack. The, the bigger problem is slow pay, uh, you know, yeah. uh, doing collections. Don't you get me started. Letter says payment do do not get, don't, Kevin, you're going to ruin my weekend. Stop it. <laughs> You're, oh god uh so the, you know the collections part which is yeah it's an awkward but unfortunately occasionally necessary part of this job yeah i i had an insurance company that took like a year and two months to pay a bill then they called me again afterwards and wanted something i said yeah sure and they said what's the retainer i go 100 <laughs> percent what i go the retainer is 100% of my fees up front. They're like, we can't do that. I go, well, you took, it took 15 months to pay your bill, you idiot. And the, yes. the, <laughs> in my realm, Bill, the exquisite irony is that my engagement letter <laughs> sets forth, you know, a 30, 30 day turnaround, which yeah. I don't think is unreasonable for payment. And, and where, where they're consistently late and they've engaged me to render an opinion that XYZ insurance company is a company that keeps its commitments and promises. Yeah. I'm saying, am I the only one seeing the disconnect here? Or on the plaintiff's side, they're saying that XYZ insurance company was in bad faith by not keeping its promises when they, their counsel on behalf of them, have agreed to certain terms in the engagement letter, which, which they are breaching. And I'm thinking, am, am I the only one seeing the, the you know, double standard here? Yeah. Awesome. Um, last question, then we'll wrap up here. Uh, this has been a great, great podcast. Um, you, Kevin, you have a lot of experience. You, you've, you've been exposed to a lot of attorneys. I, I think a large, um, or a, let's call it a significant um, proportion of our audience on the Litigation Psychology Podcast are younger attorneys, are your 30-something, 40-something attorneys not necessarily the 50s, you know, the, the, the veterans, we have a lot of the 30 and 40 something attorneys. Um, 
and they don't have a lot of trial ex- ex- experience. What what would be, uh, given your experience uh, uh, in, in, in the field and industry too, what would be maybe some just practical feedback or knowledge given your years of experience um, to, to the younger attorney trying to uh, either they're, they're probably either just made partner or they're a very young partner or they're on the or they're trying to jump into that partner. Uh, you've been exposed to so much uh, of, of that in your career. Um, maybe what kind of car- career I- I- advice and things you've seen would you give to that group? Because I'll, I think a lot of those uh, folks listen to our podcast and are very interested in your feedback, given the experience uh, you've had over your career. It is a problem. Uh, when I worked with uh, attorneys, uh, it was largely product liability defense attorneys, the product liability defense bar, defending pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, et cetera. And it was, and probably still is a challenge. I knew attorneys in their forties who had never yet tried a case. Wow. And, the, and the difficulty of getting trial experience because the defendants and or the insurance companies you know, it's like uh, if you're having surgery, do you, do you want the, the, the guy or the lady who's doing it for the first time? You understand that they need to get experience, yeah. but let them get experience yeah, yeah. on someone else's abdomen <laughs> or someone else's uh. pharmaceutical or medical device case. I don't have a pat answer other than to, uh, you know, work work your tail off, have a good work product and see if you can second chair or third chair these partners when when cases do go to trial and by dint of your persistence and the quality of your work product, position yourself to move into that first chair role. And it it may, that's that's not a a magic tip. And it may may be a very long process to do that. Mm Another avenue that I've seen is, you know, attorneys fresh out of law school who, who go into some public capacity like public defender or, or some, some other kind of capacity where they're getting trial, they're in a courtroom, they're getting trial experience, um, whether it's for, on, on the part of the Commonwealth or uh, the government or in the capacity of public defender. That may not be the, the law subject matter that they uh, ultimately want to work in, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I, I, I have a friend who wants to do white collar criminal defense, but oh. she is in, she's with, uh, in the Southern District of uh, California, Southern California District with the, with the prosecutor's office. And, uh, you know, the, it's not as remunerative as being in private practice, but she has a long-term goal to move it, to move to the other side, white collar defense, where I'm sure she can command a high premium, but she's yeah. going to get the courtroom experience, or people in public defender. Not the most yeah. glamorous start, but those people are in court a lot. They're trying cases occasionally. Um, you know, other than the quality of your work product, the tenacity, and being third chair, second chair, making yourself indispensable to where at some point you're first in that batting lineup. That's amazing. Great stuff. Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. This is a lot of really awesome information. Um, I don't know what's, I I, I don't know. um, Tobacco road may, may, may be dead. Um, You know, I guess ESPN and and, and the big 12 may kill the, kill these, uh, 
you know, the Wake Forest, NC State, Duke, North Carolina, those those four schools are really close. And to to break that up would be a damn shame. And I don't know what the locals down there are saying I haven't talked or, or up there. I'm in Florida now, but uh, it would just be a damn shame, wouldn't it? It, it would. And I don't know where the smaller players, you know, uh, like Wake Forest yeah. uh, or, you know, a Rice or some of those. Uh, yeah. SEC's not coming courting them to, to join, you know, no. Wake Forest goes to, it's the, the whole traditions are being shattered. And, yeah. um, and it started, you know, when they, when the ACC admitted, when Maryland leaves the ACC and, yeah. and like Boston College and Syracuse come a in. Founding like, member, a founding member of the yeah, ACC. Yes, Maryland. it just, uh, just didn't seem right. And now, of course, the paradigm is just shattering. It, it has good and bad features. It's something that there'll be just one, you know, one conference or one, two mega conferences. I don't know, but the smaller schools, I mean, other than, I think Rice Wake is the smallest Division One school with you know athletic yeah. program, and you know with a enrollment of four or five thousand people, it's hard for them to compete within the ACC. So I don't know if they're going to be, you know, it's all about money now. Whatever the question is in college sports, the answer <laughs> is money. And it's so uh, it's all about the money. And I'll close on uh, one of my uh, favorite bands in college, a band called REM. Yeah, REM was a great band uh, and they had the song and the song is called, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it, but I feel fine. (laughs) Kevin Quinley, thank you so much for being on the show. This was terrific to our audience members. Keep uh, a spread the word about the podcast getting out there. You want to be a guest? Uh, That is possible. Maybe I'll think about it. Contact me. Uh, but we love doing the podcast. We like getting the word out there. We like educating people and we like to make you laugh too. So Dr. Bill Kanaski, this is the litigation psychology podcast. We will see you next time.